The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10, specifically verse 27. Look at verse 27 of John 10. Profound verse, important verse. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now let me back up and read the verses previous so you understand the context of what Jesus is saying. If you would, look back up at verse 22. Verse 22, Jesus says, or excuse me, John says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple on the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you would, bow your heads briefly in prayer. Heavenly Lord, Heavenly Father, Lord, would you focus our hearts now, our minds on the truth. Lord, may we see Christ, and may we understand ourselves in light of who you are. We love you, we trust you. In Christ's name, amen. There are, two fr- there are two questions that I get very frequently. The first is, how do I know that I am a Christian? How do I know that I am a Christian? And the second question is, is can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a true Christian lose their salvation? So what I'd like to do over the next two weeks is answer those two questions. This week, I'm going to answer the question, who is a Christian, or can you know that you're a Christian? And then next week, I'm going to answer the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Sometimes this question, how do I know I am a Christian, is discussed under the phrase or the title, assurance. Maybe you've said that or heard that before. Do you have assurance of salvation? Do you know that you know that you are truly a Christian? Assurance of salvation refers to your own understanding and confidence of salvation. Sometimes it's the case where a believer is truly saved, but they don't realize that they're saved. They have questions regarding their salvation. But it's Christ's desire, it's your good shepherd's desire that you have 100% confidence 100% assurance that you are indeed a Christian. Now, it's a very important question to get at. 
this question of how do I know that I am a Christian? Because unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the modern church who are deceived on this point, who are overconfident and think that they're Christians when in fact they are not Christians. There is what we call the invisible church. There's the local church, which is what you see this morning. The local church is the expression of people who gather together, who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the local church. The invisible church, or what sometimes theologians call the church universal, are all the true Christians from 2,000 years ago until now that are truly born again and will inherit the streets of gold in heaven. That is the church universal or the church invisible. Now, here's the thing. There are some people possibly here this morning that are part of this local church that might not be part of the church universal, that might not be part of the church invisible. But it's my contention and my hope that this morning in in hearing what we're about to discuss, that you will know that you know that you know that you are truly one of Christ's sheep, that you are truly born again, that you are one of his. So... Just as an example of those who were deceived in the New Testament, who thought that they were saved, but really weren't. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And, he, and Jesus will say to them on that final day, depart from, me, depart from me, I never knew you. And then in Matthew 13, there's the example of the wheat and the tares. Jesus says the wheat and the tares, they grow side by side but they look like they're the same. They look like they're both Christians, but there's a difference. One are truly believers. The tares look like they're believers, but at the end of the age, we'll realize that they're not, and Jesus will divide them, and the tares will be thrown into hell. In the parable of the sower, there's three soils that for a time look like they are genuine believers. There's the soil, the rocky soil, which grows, and then the cares or or the trials and difficulties choke out what's growing, then there is the thorny soil, which grows and the cares of the world choke it out. But only the true soil actually grows and bears fruit. Only the good soil is actually the born again believer. So the question is, how do you know that you're truly born again? How do you know that you're the good soil? How do you know that you're the wheat? How do you know that when you stand before Christ on the last day, he's not going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you see why this question is important? It's very important, and it's very important for you, and it's very important for those that you are ministering to, because this is a question, if you are discipling somebody, that you will get, how do I know that I am a sheep? How do I know that I am a Christian? Now, the simplest answer to this question, okay, this is the simplest answer to how you can know that you are truly a Christian is to look to the promises of God. This is the simplest answer, the simplest answer. Because God says this, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise that God makes, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, that God promises to save you. And can God lie? No, he cannot. It's it's against his character to lie. So if God cannot lie and God promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, then you can take that to the bank. Now, that is, that is the basic level of assurance. That is, that is the, the simplest grounds of assurance is to ask yourself, have I simply called upon the name of the Lord and asked him to save me? And if you have, God promises that you will be saved. 
There's another level of assurance, though, and this is the level that Jesus is addressing this morning, and that is how the New Testament defines a Christian. So the next way to understand whether or not you are truly a Christian is to examine the pages of the New Testament and see how a Christian is described. See how the Christian looks, what the Christian looks like. See what the the type of fruit that the Christian produces. And then you look at that description and then you turn around and ask yourself, does my life look like that? Does my life look like that? Do I bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Do I love and hunger for righteousness, as Jesus says? Am I meek? Do I tremble at the word of God? You ask these questions, and then if you do, you can arrive at that level of assurance. You say, okay, this is what a Christian looks like. This is what my life is supposed to look like. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 27. Look back at verse 27. Jesus gives a description to us of what the sheep are supposed to look like. This is a very clear description, and he's giving this description to Jews who are not of his sheep. He says, look, this is what my sheep look like. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep, I know them. My sheep, they follow me. So those are three very clear descriptions of what a sheep is, what a true Christian is. And I want to really look at those with you this morning. But first, I want you to understand the context that this scripture appears in. Look back up at verse 22. Look at verse 22. There is a break between verses 21 and 22. Verses uh, 20, 21, everything that goes before it in John chapter 10 likely took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been in October. Now you fast forward here two months. We're in December. We're at the Feast of Dedication. We don't really know what Jesus was doing in that time in between, but here we are. Uh, Two months later, it's the Feast of Dedication. Verse 22 says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. A quick word about the Feast of Dedication. This feast is not an Old Testament feast. This feast started just 150 years before the time of Christ. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Seleucid ruler under the Greek Empire, uh, was a really foolish man, uh, a God-hater, and in 167 AD, he was governing the Jews, and what he did is he went into the temple, and he took a pig, and he slaughtered a pig on the Jewish altar as a sacrifice to Zeus. How do you think that went over with Orthodox Jews? Seriously, how do you think that went? It started a revolution. Have you ever heard of Judas Maccabees, the Hebrew hammer? He basically started a campaign of guerrilla warfare and overthrew the Greeks. And in 165 AD, so just two years later after this event, they overthrow the temple and they rededicate it. They rededicate the temple, 165 AD. And that's what the Feast of Dedication is about, is commemorating the rededication of the temple. What do Jews call this today? Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. That's what Jews are celebrating with Hanukkah. Now, interestingly enough, what does Jesus fulfill? All of the Old Testament feasts. 
all of the Old Testament ceremonies, including the Feast of Dedication. Because remember, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. Remember in John chapter 2, when he says, tear down this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Jesus dedicated his temple when he gave his life on the cross. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple on the temple mount? The veil was torn into the Holy of Holies. The reason why it was torn is because now there's a new temple. Now there's a new temple. The temple is Christ. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God in his presence. You don't have to go to a temple to make sacrifices. Now you go to Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple, and it's at Calvary that he dedicated his temple. So in that way, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Hanukkah. So the next time you're in a conversation with your Jewish friend around December, that's a conversation point. You can point to the fact that Jesus is the true embodiment of the Festival of Lights, the true dedication of the temple. And by the way, in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, 22, is there a temple? No, there's not. Jesus is at the center of the city, and Jesus is the fulfillment of our temple worship and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is here at this Feast of Dedication. And if you look at verse 23, there's simply a geographical reference. It says, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The colonnade of Solomon was an area, a porch. Sometimes it's called Solomon's porch, which was to the east of the temple. And incidentally, this is where the early church would gather to worship. If you read Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5, the church would often gather in this colonnade. It was destroyed in 70 AD when the Roman emperor Titus destroyed the temple. If you look at verse 24, here's what happens. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is a very interesting question that they ask. It's a very derogative question that they ask. Let me explain what's going on here. The Jews, when John refers to the Jews, he's primarily talking about the Jewish people that live around Jerusalem. The people to the north are called the Galileans. He's talking about the people that live in Judea, Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And remember, Jesus, is, Jesus has had run-ins with the Jews at all these different feasts that John has talked about. In John chapter 8, he said that they are of their father, the devil. So these Jews, do you think they like Jesus or do you think they're against Jesus? They're against Jesus. In fact, the context tell, tells us that. Look at verse 31. Jump down to verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they're, they're going to try to make an assassination attempt on him here after he finish, finishes speaking to them. So they're not really interested to understand if he's truly the Messiah. They're asking him this question to try and entrap him, to try to destroy him. Now, the concept of Messiah was a politically charged title. What do you think the Jews' understanding of Messiah is at the time? 
It's of a political ruler. It's of somebody who's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. When they think Christos or Messiah, that's what they're thinking about. And for that reason, one of the things that's interesting to notice when you read the Gospels is that Jesus is very careful about using that word, Messiah. He doesn't tell many people that he is actually the Messiah. There's one instance in the Gospel of John, you remember, with the woman at the well. The woman at the well asked the Lord, she said, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christos who is to come? And in John 4, Jesus said to her, I, I am, or I who speak to you am he. And remember with his disciples in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christos, the son of the living God. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus strictly charged his disciples to tell no one explicitly that he was the Christ. So he was very careful about using that word, Messiah, very careful about using that word, Christos. But he had told the Jews, he had told them many times in other ways that he was indeed the Messiah. He had told them, for example, in John 5, he says, my father is working and I am working. What he was saying is, look, on the Sabbath day, which I'm performing this miracle, healing the, the lame man at Bethesda on the, pool, on, the, on the Sabbath. My father is working on the Sabbath, and I'm working. The Jews understood that because they picked up stones to, to try and kill him. They understood that he was claiming to be one with the father. And then in John chapter 8, he told the Jews, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He makes that I am statement. I am Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I existed. I am. And what did they do? They tried to kill him. So he had told them in numerous ways that he was indeed the Messiah. He just hadn't told them that explicitly. Now, he had also worked various miracles. And the miracles, as Jesus points to, testify. They're a witness that he is indeed the Messiah. Now, parenthetically, and this is, I think, something interesting to think about. Unbelief always seeks more evidence. Unbelief always seeks more answers. Faith believes the word of God and believes God at his word. Unbelief says, give me more give me more. What, are these, what more do these people need? They say, Lord, how long are you going to, to keep us in suspense? How long, O oh Lord? I mean, he's already done these miracles where he's healed a man that was born blind. He's performed the miracles of Isaiah 35, but how much more does he have to do? And I talk to people all the time. They say, you know, I just don't have enough evidence that God actually exists. I just, there's just not enough evidence for me to believe. And yet David says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Or you might hear people say, I can't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. 
Have you heard that? You know, I can't believe in God because of what happened in Afghanistan or what's happening in our country. Yet, when you read the Bible, you realize that God's plan is the ultimate destruction of evil. In the new heaven and new earth, there is no evil. There are no tears. Satan is vanquished forever. And by the way, Jesus came to redeem evil people. So God has a plan. God has a plan to take evil people and make them righteous where they will inherit a new world without evil. It's all there in the book if you would just pick it up. Or you might hear people say, I don't believe in God because God's moral standard is oppressive. You hear that in this day and age? How can I believe in God who says that I can't do what I want to do? Yet it's the law of God which is meant to reveal to you that you are a sinner so that you can find the gospel and find true freedom. That's why the law of given, law was given at Sinai. The law was given so that you would realize your need of a savior and in coming to Christ that you would find true freedom in him. So at every step, our world answers Christ in unbelief, yet God has the answer, but the world will not listen. So notice Christ's response to these Jews in verse 25. Notice how he answers them. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. He says, I've told you in no uncertain terms that I am indeed the Christ. I've told you that I, am the, I and the Father are one. I've told you to believe in me. I've told you that I am one with the Father. He says, consider this carefully. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He's done these miracles, he's done these signs, which point to the fact that he is indeed the Messiah, the anointed one. And then notice verse 26. This is a very profound verse, a staggering verse, if you think about it. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that the grounds of belief is that you are already a sheep. Or in this case, the grounds for why they do not believe is because they are not his sheep. Remember, we've studied this. The sheep are given to Christ before the foundation of the world. For example, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. What Paul is saying is, is before time began, before time began, God understands that Adam and Eve are going to sin and cast humanity under condemnation. And so before time began, God chose who the sheep would be. And then, in a divine rescue mission, planned to send the Son into the world to save those sheep. You know how I know that? Because Revelation says that there is a book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. When? Before the foundation of the world. So the book was written before the foundation of the world, and the sheep's names were already in it. 
So the lamb was considered slain before sin had even happened. Isn't that remarkable? And so the sheep, God the Father says to the Son, you are to go into the world and I'm giving these sheep to you to save. And that's what we see in, um, if you look at verse 29, look at verse 29. He says, my father who has given them to me, given who? The sheep to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Uh, John six thirty seven. Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there is a certainty about all of this, that all whom the father chose will ultimately be saved because the son is sent on a mission to save them. This, by the way, doesn't mean that the sheep, when they come into this life and they're born, it doesn't mean that they're born Christians. The Holy Spirit must apply what Christ has done in their life. We know that people are born, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, dead in their trespasses and sin. All sheep are born as unbelievers who are opposed to God, who are born wretches in darkness. And people used to understand this. Remember that book? Maybe you read it in junior high, Lord of the Flies. Anybody have to read that book for English? What, what was the thesis of that book? It's that if you leave humanity to itself, what's the end result? Anarchy. Anarchy. You look at the world. I mean, this isn't hard to see, is it? Go, go, walk outside. What's the end result of man left to himself without God? It's anarchy against God's laws. It's man shaking his fist at God and saying, I know better than you. It's a moral free-for-all. Does that sound familiar? It's Lord of the flies. And we think that man is inherently good? No, we are not. What this means is this. So the sheep, they're not born Christians, but every sheep has an appointed Damascus Road experience. Who am I talking about? Paul. Every sheep has a predestined moment in which God is going to intervene in their life, where they are going to go to a Billy Graham crusade, or they're going to go to a church service, or a friend is going to give them a New Testament, or they're going to look at a Gideon's Bible in a hotel, or whatever it is. They have a moment where God the Holy Spirit is going to intervene in their life, and they are going to come to saving faith. For some people, it's very early on in their lives. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So for Jeremiah, it was in the womb. That's not most people. He was a prophet. For others, it's later in life. Remember the thief on the cross? It was on his deathbed. So there are some people, yes, that do come to Christ at the, at the moments, the final moments before they die. But here's the point of what I'm saying. You don't believe in Christ to become a sheep. You believe in Christ because you are a sheep. And in the mysteries of God, this doesn't negate human responsibility. It's very important to say that. 
that each and every one of us has a responsibility to believe the gospel, to, has a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Yes, God has appointed the sheep, but we don't know the means by which those sheep are to come in. We are to be sent as evangelists to proclaim the truth, knowing that God has his appointed sheep and he will bring them in. But f- notice what Jesus is saying to these Jews. Jesus is saying to them, you will not believe in me because you do not belong to the remnant. You will not believe because you are not my sheep. That's ultimately why you will not believe. So now we come to the question. Now we come to the question, how do you know that you are one of Christ's sheep? I emphasize Christ, because look at that first pronoun in the verse, my sheep. The father gives the sheep to Christ, so now the sheep belong to him. And Jesus says there's three qualities that, that define his sheep. The first one is this, Christ's sheep hear their shepherd. Christ's sheep hear their shepherd. This is really important to understand. I think most modern Christians don't understand this truth, but there is an effectual calling of God, an effectual calling of God. If you look at verse three, look at verse three. We saw this earlier. Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then look at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, has anybody here ever actually heard the voice of Jesus Christ personally, audibly? No, you haven't. But if you're in Christ, I said audibly, but you have in your heart if you're in Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, he's not talking about the proclamation of the truth verbally, He's talking about the proclamation of the truth to your heart. Remember he was saying a few minutes ago, open the eyes of my heart. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that there's some point in time where Christ speaks to your heart. It's a voice to the inner man. It's a voice that overcomes your resistance to the truth. It's a voice that convicts you of sin. It's a voice that causes Christ to become compelling to you. It's a voice that awakens something in you that you never knew was there, a love for the things of God. And for that reason, if you pay attention, go do a a lexicon study of the word call or calling. When you read the New Testament, one of the ways that Christians are referred to is as the called, those whom are called, those who have responded to their calling. Let me give you a few examples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians one twenty four. but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A few verses later, verse four, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your 
call. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, he says, Christ saved us and called us to a holy calling. The apostle Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So God, the Holy Spirit calls you. He puts this call, this effectual call in your heart. And the response of the sheep is what? What's the response of the sheep to the call? They hear his voice. That is so important. Because hearing in the scriptures doesn't mean listening. Did you know that? Hearing doesn't mean listening. It's one thing to listen to a sermon. It's another thing to hear a sermon. What do we, what do we mean by that? We mean by hearing that you understand, you believe, and you obey. You, do you understand the difference? Lots of people heard Jesus preach. Very few people heard him preach. Jesus would put it like this. He said at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man and built his house on the rock. But he who does not hear will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Matthew 13, Jesus says, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. The Christian is somebody whom the Holy Spirit opens up their heart to the truth so that as they're hearing the gospel proclaimed, they hear it, they understand it, and they believe it. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in Philippi and they went by the river outside the town and they met a woman there named Lydia and they preached to her the gospel right along that river and Luke records this. This is Acts 16. He said, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's the call. And when God calls, you hear. And that explains why sometimes I talk to Christians and they say, I grew up in a Christian home. I must have heard the gospel preached a hundred times, but I never understood it. Have you ever heard that? Maybe that was your experience. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, you hear it again, and a light bulb goes off in your mind. What is that? That's the call. And then as a result, you hear and you believe. So the question is, is have you had that experience where Christ has called you in the heart, where you've come to know the truth and believe the truth, where you find the gospel the most compelling reality in the universe, where you say, yes, I, I believe in Christ and there's salvation in no other name. I bank everything on his life, his cross, none of my own works. Have you come to that point? That's the call of God upon your life, the call of Christ. So that's the first reality that Jesus talks about. The second is that Christ's sheep are known by their shepherd. Look back at verse 27, 
Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them. And I know them. Of course, Jesus is, is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about everyone. So what Jesus is saying here is that he has a special knowledge of the sheep. Knowledge in the scripture speaks to intimacy. Do you remember in Genesis, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. Knowledge speaks of an intimate knowledge, an intimate love. And Jesus has talked about this, this relationship to his sheep. If you look at verse 14, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe, the God who created everything, the God that existed before time, an infinite triune love, that God knows you and loves you. That's what it means. That God loves you, he knows you, he knows everything about you, and he cares for you. That's what it means when Jesus says, I know my sheep. It means he knows you, he loves you, he watches over you. It's Psalm 23, the Lord leading you. And what the Lord does is the Lord, just as he says in verse 14, brings you into a knowledge of himself. The Lord brings you into a knowledge of God. And this is, this is the essence of the Christian life, that you know him, that you know that Jesus knows you and you know your good shepherd. And so much of the Christian life is just reveling in this knowledge of him. I was just walking yesterday and just looking up at the sky, looking up and thinking about the glory of all that God has created. See, for the Christian, you can't escape God. Everything that you think about in life, your relationships, you view as a gift from him. Everywhere you go and you see beauty, you think about what God has created. When you sin, you think about the fact of forgiveness that God in his mercy has atoned for you. When you sin against someone else, you, you're able to find reconciliation because of what Christ has done. You can't escape God. And that's the life of Christianity. Christ reveals this knowledge of himself to us. And he does this in several ways. Let me just briefly give these to you. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter that deals almost entirely with this reality of assurance. How do you know that you are genuinely a Christian? How do you know that you have this knowledge of him and that Christ knows you? Christ always reveals himself to us with our call through the reality of the gospel. The, the, the Christian's first understanding of God is a God who sends his son as a savior to die on our behalf. That's where the knowledge of God starts. In fact, I would say you can't begin anywhere else. If you try and philosophize about God, but you do it without the cross, you will always end up with an image of yourself. You must begin with the cross. And that's what, why Paul says, look, Romans 8, 1, what does he say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has paid for their sins at the cross. To know God, you begin with grace. You begin at the cross. 
the cross as the great starting point to knowing God. And this was what Luther's issue was with so many of the scholastic theologians of his day. He said, look, you, you make these hypothetical postulates about God, but yet you don't understand that God has demonstrated who he is at the cross. And so if you don't know God there, Luther said, you don't know God at all because it's at the cross that you see the mercy and the grace of God. If you don't have the mercy and the grace of God, what do you have? You just have a, a tyrannical God, a God that's all justice and no love. And so Luther says, you have to go to the cross because it's at the cross that, lo that love and justice kiss. He said this, this is a, a quote from the Heidelberg Disputation. He says, he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering in the cross. So it's at the cross that you first encounter who God is. And then when you trust in Christ as your savior, one of the things that you are immediately given, I say, should say one of the persons you are given is the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, that the Lord Jesus brings us to a knowledge of himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So how do we experience this reality of the Holy Spirit? How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? That's a great question. Is it if you speak in tongues? I didn't see anybody flopping on the floor earlier during the songs. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? What does he say? Verse 11, look again. What does he say? It's the life. It's the spiritual life. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount in 3D. It's that you hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is, I mean, it's, it's all right there in the Beatitudes. That God, the Holy Spirit, imparts those new desires into your, into your life. So that's a great way to, to check and see, do you have this spiritual life? Go read the Beatitudes. Am, am I poor in spirit? Do I mourn over my sin? Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Am I meek? All those things, do they define you? Because those are the qualities of the new life. Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he gives you this new life, and then he leads you. He leads you, and the way that he leads you is he convicts you over sin, and he prompts you to walk in holiness. Have you ever, as a Christian, have you ever tried to commit a premeditated sin and immediately felt under the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Or you thought, oh, I can get away with this. It's, it's just a little peccadillo. It's nothing big. And then you do it, and what happens? That conviction rushes over you. And you're like, I have to go beg for forgiveness immediately. God, I've sinned, and I need to go. And somebody says, well, why are you asking for forgiveness? That didn't even offend me. And you said, well, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit leading you. And then one other way. He leads us, look at verse 16. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, 
than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's some experiences in our life where the Holy Spirit, as he said in verse 15, causes us to cry out with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. And he brings that experiential knowledge of the fact that we are God's children right to our own souls, where we know it, we're certain of it, we're unequivocal about it. So the Lord Jesus brings us to a knowledge of himself by his spirit. He also brings us to a knowledge of himself through his providential care. Look at verse 28. And we know. Now, pay special attention to who this verse applies to. We know that for those who love God, who is that? Those are the sheep. That ain't everyone. That is the sheep. So only the sheep can claim this promise. It's not for all people. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there that word is again, according to his purpose. So Christ, the good shepherd, guides you by his providential hand. He leads you. And it, it doesn't say that everything that happens in your life is good. That's not what the verse says. It says that he works all things together for your good. That's a key distinction to make. So what that means is, is that every day that you open your eyes, you are waking up to the providential hand of your shepherd who is guiding you. Nothing is by chance. There is no blind luck or blind fate. God is guiding you through his providence. I remember one time I was out at a shepherd's conference and MacArthur was being interviewed and he said, it was, uh, I, I don't remember anything else from the sermons. I remember this from the interview. He said, I can't wake up. I can't wait to wake up every morning to the providence of God. Can't wait to wake up to the providence of God. That impacted me so much to think that God is guiding you. God is leading you in all things, all things are working together for your good. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're like, man, this messed up. This went haywire. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that this fell out. I can't believe that this deal ended the way it did. And then five years down the road, you look back and you think, oh, wow, he was protecting me. He was using that for my sanctification. He was using that to, to sharpen me. He was using that so that I would meet this person. If that wouldn't have happened, I would have never met them. And then you love him all the more because you know him through his providential hand. And then, of course, we know him through the word of God. We know him through the word of God, that the Holy Spirit brings to bear the word of God in our lives so that we know him truly as he has revealed himself. It, it is unfathomable to me that we have a book that reveals God. And Americans are blind to it. They're blind to it. We have the revelation of Almighty God, and it's contained in one book. And he has revealed himself. So the Holy Spirit causes us to hunger and thirst for the word of God. That's universal, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. That's the Christian. 
So that wherever you go, you're like, you're meditating on the word. You want more of the word. You, it's, it's, it's who you are. The word becomes part of your very soul. David said, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul more to be desired. Are they than gold, even much fine gold? Isaiah says, describing the Christian, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So the Holy Spirit leads believers to love the truth, to know the truth. You ever think about in your week, you encounter so many people in the grocery store over the summer, different places you're going to go. Think about this. How many people have ever actually, let's say, read through the book of Isaiah? How many people? Go to the pool. Look around. How many people have ever actually picked up God's revelation of himself and read it? How many Christians have read it? It's amazing to me that so many Christians in the church haven't actually read the word of God. I believe, this is my opinion, this isn't, this isn't law. I believe that every Christian should read the Bible through once every year. I mean, what else? We have all the time in the world. It takes 15 minutes. If you will read 15 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible. Your knowledge of God will increase tremendously if you will just pick up this book and read. Tola lege. That's, what, that's Latin for take up and read. Take it up, read, know the Lord. So that's second, that Christ reveals himself to us. And then third, turn back to to John 10, last, the sheep, Christ's sheep, follow their shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They know me, and they follow me. Akaluthio is the word. It means to be Christ's disciple. That's the, all the, the rabbis of the day, they would have their disciples, and the word akaluthio means that they follow their rabbi. And Jesus is saying that every true sheep is a disciple because following Christ begins with faith in the Son of God. We have an American gospel today that says all you have to do is assent to the facts of the gospel here and you're in. Have you heard that? You just, if you just, okay, just raise your hand. Do you believe what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, yeah. Does that make you a Christian? No, it does not. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Matthew 8, 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 8, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So the true gospel says this is what saving faith looks like. It's like my uncle, my Cajun uncle was a, was a pastor in Louisiana. And he, and he would say to me, Grant, you don't commit yourself to Christ. You surrender yourself to Christ. That's what faith is, is you come to the end of yourself and you trust him with your life and you surrender to him. That's true faith. Is it, is it enough for me just to say, oh yeah, I believe? Or does it need to be expressed through surrender? It's trust and surrender. 
That's what saving faith is. And that's why Jesus expressed it as you come follow me. Leave the dead to bury their dead. You go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you follow me. It's, it's saying, I am trusting you, and I am following you. Now, what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? Somebody asks you, what is following Christ? It's simply this, that you are willing to base your life off his life and obey his commands. That's it. Very simple. And the reason why I wanted to find that is because some throughout the history of the church have said that you need to make a vow of poverty. After all, didn't, didn't Jesus, he only owned a tunic, right? So if you're going to follow him, you have to be poor and you have to be, what is it? Celibate. Because Jesus never married. So if we're going to be a true follower, we have to be celibate and we have to be obedient. Ever heard of the Desert Fathers? St. Anthony, so-called, who was in Alexandria and was fighting temptations. And he said, for me to really be a true follower of Christ, I have to renounce all that I have, give it away, and go out to the desert and live in a cave, and then I will be a true follower of Christ. That's the poverty understanding of following Christ. And then later on, they added celibacy. And so for years, for a thousand years in the Catholic church, there were two tiers of disciples. There were the upper class disciples, those who had made vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, and said, oh, we will be obedient. And then there was the hoi polloi, everybody else. But that's not how a disciple is defined. Disciple is somebody who is willing to trust Christ and obey him. And Jesus never said that there is a universal rule for poverty, and he never said that there's a universal rule for celibacy. Those were add-ons to the great detriment of people's spiritual lives. Because they thought that they were more holy than they really were. Following Christ is looking to Christ in faith, trusting him, and stepping out in obedience to obey him. That's what it means to follow Christ. So look at those three diagnostics. Have you heard his voice? Do you know him? And do you follow him? And if you can answer yes to those questions, then you are a true sheep. And you don't need to have any doubt whatsoever. You are one of his sheep. The, that's the diagnostic test. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I can't affirm any of those. Yeah, I know it here, but I've never heard the call of God upon my life. I don't really have a knowledge of him. I don't follow Christ in my life. Well, that means that you need to trust him. Do not pass go and surrender your life to Christ right now. Because, Lord willing, you are his sheep. So hear me today. Today is the day of salvation. Do not go through those doors without surrendering your life to Christ. Hear his voice. He calls sinners to repent. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for...
this clear delineation of who your sheep are, that your sheep know your voice, that you know them, they know you, and that they follow you. So Lord, may we leave here with clear confidence and assurance that we are your sheep. And may we be more emboldened to follow hard after you, more emboldened to present Christ to our lost friends and neighbors, knowing that you will call your sheep to yourself. We thank you for these truths in Christ's beloved name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.